This week on The Sport Blokes. On this week's show, India pushing back hard on the Aussies, a green dick in Hamilton, wedding bells in Almaty, and parts five and six in our NBA and AFL season reviews. Let's do it. Well, Shui, the Southern Hemisphere's summer of cricket is well and truly in full swing. But as we do at the top every week, what caught your attention and what did you miss? Well, what caught my attention just then was your beautiful use of the uh, the term swing when talking about cricket. Unintentional <laughs> <But>, uh, <laughs> puns. Yeah, well played though. No, but what actually caught my attention this week was unfortunately the disgusting story out of Texas high school football with defensive lineman Emmanuel Duron from Edinburgh High School. I imagine it's Edinburgh because the Americans kind of like pronouncing things incorrectly and there's no H at the end of it as well, like there is in Edinburgh. <laughs> anyway, he's he's hit the opposing quarterback late and after getting a penalty for that and then an unsportsmanlike conduct penalty, he was ejected from the game. Now, Duron obviously was annoyed by this. Most people would be annoyed at getting kicked out of a game. But he made this decision to run back on the field and blindside hit referee Fred Garcia, who's 58 years old, yeah. I might add. It's yeah. it's just disgraceful. It sure was. Thank God, like thank God he also caught the attention of the referee just before he hit him. Otherwise, it could have been so much worse. Yeah. So yeah, like the only positive from it, I guess, is Duron's been arrested and charged with assault. His team's been disqualified as well from from the, the remainder of a tournament. Wow. So Little bit of a uh, yeah, bit of a. Well, I don't even want to say a silver lining, but well, actions have consequences, don't they? Th- they do. So I-, I guess I just wanted your thoughts on this. Like, what do you think of? Have you- you've obviously seen the play. What do you? I thoughts did. Yeah, on I it? saw it on Pat McAfee's Twitter. As a matter of fact, yeah. Mm. Like lifetime ban is that is that? Oh enough? gee, I mean it- it's tricky when they're in high school, isn't it? You know, they're underage, so <laughs> it's really bad though. Really bad. It's really tricky because I don't know was he a, was he a senior or? Ah, uh, yeah, he was because yeah. See, what can they do? Been, that's it. There's been all this talk about yeah. He he can uh, he can have as much of a ban as he wants from high school football because he's never going to play again. But well, that's right. I mean, if if he was a college potential, and we don't know whether or not he was, but if he was and he was a fringe guy, then that's certainly the sort of thing that would scare teams off. So I dare mm. say he would have heard his stock enough anyway. And I guess if, if he's a senior, then. Let the local police deal with it. There's really not much else they can do. It's a bit like yeah. it's a bit like Alistair Lynch cracking guys in the grand final, knowing there's not going to be any retribution afterwards, isn't it? You're always the voice of reason, Nate. Always. Uh, it's still a dog act, though. Jeez. Oh, it terrible. really is. It really is. Look, hopefully, what caught your attention will be a little bit more positive than that. So, so yeah, what what caught your attention this week? Well, it's crept up on us, and and a lot of things have crept up on us because we the schedules are all so weird. But after we recorded last week, I chucked on ESPN and. There was college basketball right in front of me. Hey. So I watched the first half of Texas and Davidson, which was good hearing Bill Walton in full swing. So, yeah. yeah. And that was before, unfortunately, I think we had a one of the big games. What was it? Baylor and I can't remember who it was, but that got uh, got cancelled because of the COVID. So. Oh, look, we have to, yeah, we have to predict that going forward. Mm. It's going to be very, very interesting because the COVID situation is getting worse and worse by the day over there. Yep. So, yeah, we've just yeah. got to be happy with what we can get, I think. Anything we can get, yeah. Yeah. What'd you miss, mate? Well, unfortunately, I had some real troubles with the KO account yesterday. So I missed about three quarters of the Aussies batting in the second T20. And I had to rely on highlights for that. So uh, it would have been nice to see Matty Wade's innings live. But unfortunately, I did have to, uh, yeah, just rely on what I could what I could get. So, oh, that's yeah, all right, mate. Show. I got you covered there. I did manage there to see the go. entire match, actually. So Sensational. Yeah. 
So what did you miss? Well, Shui, I've been sitting on this one for about four months, I think. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I, I keep forgetting, but uh, I finally remembered this week. The Sydney Blue Sox in the Australian Baseball League have signed all-time MLB great Manny Ramirez to a one-year deal. So he'll be playing in the Australian Baseball League soon enough. So that's pretty exciting oh, so, for the sport over here. So, so what you've missed was basically telling that story. Yeah, well, we started. how many times have I mentioned that to you? <laughs> Several. Mm, quite a lot. Quite a lot. It. So, yeah, that's just for a change. I thought I'd mention that. Oh, dear. Yeah, no, he'll be a big pickup for them, definitely, even at his age. Indeed. Huge news in the Formula One, Shui, on several fronts. Yeah, geez, a little bit to unpack here. I mean, obviously a huge race with Lewis Hamilton out. He tested positive to COVID, which is uh, obviously not great. About the only um, thing that could his, stop him? Yeah, well, it, it really kind of looks like it is at this stage. But his, uh, his replacement, George Russell, who barely even fit in the car and had never even driven it in the first place, actually managed to finish second in the qualifying. So he's he's proved once again that Mercedes engines and cars are heads and shoulders above the rest. So Seemingly, yeah. Um, an amazing effort there. But the biggest moment might well have actually been in pit lane rather than on the track. So we fast forward through to the main race and you've got Valtteri Bottas and George Russell comfortably one and two in the race for Mercedes. But both of them actually had to come into pit around about the same time. And the pit crew have unfortunately mixed up the two sets of tyres. So, yeah. So Russell actually ended up with three tyres from one set and one from another. Wow. Which is actually illegal. So it meant that he had to come back for an unscheduled pit to fix that. And even though he's done an amazing job getting back in the race, he actually blew a tire out with about seven laps to go and ended up finishing ninth. So, a little bit of a uh, bit of an issue there with the with the pit crew. Mm. Um, Bottas, meanwhile, had a brake fire while he was in pit lane and an issue with the wrong tire as well. So that cost him nearly half a minute, and he's ended up in eighth place. So. Unfortunately for all the amazing work that these guys did in qualifying, it was a, a little bit of a bungle, although they have said it was just down to a, a malfunction with, with the two-way radios that they were using. So it wasn't actually human error as such. So, mm. you know, but no, good to see some new names on the podium. Sergio Perez from Race Point has claimed his first ever win. And then Esteban Ocon, I believe it is from Renault, made his first ever podium. He was actually in tears, which is uh, really, really nice to see. Oh, good for them. Good stories. Now, the... The other thing I did want to just quickly touch on, we've obviously had a few chats over the, the last few weeks about the whole Lewis Hamilton being the GOAT of Formula One. I was actually speaking with a really good mate of mine who's an absolute fountain of knowledge when it comes to the Formula One. Until COVID actually hit, his entire job was booking Formula One packages around the world, attending and leading groups at Formula One events around the world. Like that was his life. So he, he actually knows what he's talking really about. Oh, he's absolutely, he, he, is, he is the guy that I, I would go to for all this stuff. But he actually gave me a really interesting stat. So Hamilton's got 94 wins from 98 poles, while Schumacher has 91 from 68. So you could definitely argue that the Mercedes cars are that much better than everyone else, that Hamilton's just kind of streeting the fields because of that. While Schumacher actually was the better racer because he won a number of times when he was further back in the grid. So if you look at, when they started from the second row or further back, Schumacher actually leads the wins 24 to 12. And he has a five to two lead when started from fifth place or worse. So when you look at it, Schumacher actually does a lot better when he mm, is, you know, compelling. Not starting in pole position. Yeah. Um, Schumacher actually won the 1995 Belgian Grand Prix from 16th place as well. So he's, uh, he's capable of that. So Absolutely. Yeah, it kind of puts a little bit of uh, fresh perspective on that goat argument. So yeah, something to, to watch, I guess, and monitor and see what happens moving forward. I mean, ultimately, if you look at the numbers, Hamilton will probably end up the greatest, but... Well, I dare say more... this is the old thing where stats aren't everything, isn't it? And there's eye test yeah, and context and it. competition. There's always more to it. Always yeah. more to it. 
Now, we've had a bit of a, an update with the Aussie Open tennis. Yeah, as we alluded to last week, it was delayed, but we do have a firm date. So the delay will occur only until February 8th. Players will have to quarantine for two weeks from the 15th of January, but the Victorian government has agreed to allow special conditions to allow them to train and prepare. So that was one of the things that we were a bit worried might scare some of the big names off. Once they've completed their quarantine, they're free to roam as they please. So that's good for them. Once they've passed, just like anyone else, once they've passed that two weeks, they can walk around Melbourne, do whatever they like in their off time. And the later dates mean that the lead-in tournaments will not be played. So I guess that's the only casualty of the uh, quarantine period. But it's good to know that they'll be match fit and they'll be able to practice in that time. Yeah, that's great news about them being able to train and, and sort of have these little tiny practice matchups, I guess, in the in the lead-up. Because I know Tanasi Kokonakis had said that a lot of big-name players would probably miss if that was the case. So I think Nadal I just... is still on the fence a little bit too. So we don't know if he'll come. So I think there will probably still be some big names that don't attend. But hopefully this rule means that there are a few more big names than there might have been otherwise. I guess maybe that's a, a chance for one of these uh, these up-and-coming players or, or one of these first-time winners to come up in both the men and the women's draw. Indeed. So we, yeah. could, we could have some uh, some very, very interesting results coming up. Speaking of interesting results, Shui, another interesting finish to the rugby championship. Another bloody draw. <laughs> this is the third draw of the year for the Aussies, including their second against the Pumas of Argentina in the space of two weeks. So a 16-all result at Bankwest Stadium in Sydney. The second time the Aussies had a shot in the dying seconds to beat Argentina, but just not to be, obviously. The rugby championship was already going to New Zealand anyway. They had bonus points. They had absolutely annihilated teams in a couple of the other games beforehand. So effectively, this was a dead rubber. And maybe the Aussies were lucky to escape with a draw because they were down 13-3 to when I switched off. So well, I had to head off. That, that is true. I mean, obviously, it was a good comeback from the Aussies to get back to level and, and obviously to have a shot to win it. But uh, but yeah, you could certainly make that argument. But I'll tell you what, one thing that wasn't lifeless and, and certainly has been getting all the talk is this rendition of the national anthem by Olivia Fox, who's a proud we're a jury woman. I'm very, very impressed that every one of the Aussies sang the first half of the anthem in the Eora language, taking the time to learn the words. They belted it out with pride. This is just an absolutely magical moment for not just not just rugby, obviously, but also for Australia as a as a nation. Absolutely, yeah, just just beautiful. Yeah, I'm sorry I missed it. I'll have to seek that footage out. I, I switched on probably five minutes into the match, so I missed I missed that. Oh, that's all right. Look, it's definitely worth going back and watching. I, I mean, I didn't see the match live, admittedly, but uh, definitely made the the time to to watch that. About two and a half minutes worth, and it is, yeah, it sort of makes the the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. It's uh, it's brilliant. Well, Shui, geez, there's a lot to talk about in the cricket, isn't there? Should we go through the last three matches here in Australia since we last recorded? Yeah, we may as well. Finally, the third ODI. It was a dead rubber after Australia won the first two. India, five for three or two. They struggled for most of the innings to have lengthy partnerships, but did score 110 off the last 10, thanks to Panja and Jadeja, to finish on 302, to give them something to bowl at. And, well, actually, it ended up being a winning score. Kohli had 63. Panja, as I mentioned, had 92 off 76. Jadeja, 66 off 50. Ashton Agar, two for 44, the pick of the bowlers for the Aussies who were all out 289. Finch made a 75, Maxwell 59 off 38. Shuttle, don't call me Tupac the core, three for 51 off his 10. <laughs> yeah, it had to be said, didn't it? 
Yeah, I think you've you've summed it up really well. I mean, obviously, the hugest part of this match just purely comes down to that partnership between Pandya and Jardasia. They took 76 off the last five overs, 150 off the last 18, even being five wickets down. That's the difference. You know, we probably got to a very similar stage uh, of our innings, and unfortunately, we kept having having the wickets tumble, whereas, obviously, India were able to build that huge partnership. I mean, a couple of curious things for me. Labuschagne opening the batting was a bit of a, a curious choice for me. I would have mm. thought keep him coming in at four, yep. maybe bring up one of the bigger hitters like an Alex Carey, someone like that. I, mean, who, I don't know who you would have maybe yep. put in his place. No, that's exactly what I would have done. I would have opted for Carey or even on Reeks at a stretch. But I, I really like Smith and Labuschagne as those kind of anchor roles at three and four, and I would not change either of them from those positions. So yep. I definitely thought that that was not a good idea and it didn't come off for us. I think if we'd had Kerry at the top there, I think I think we would have laid a better platform and then Labuschagne could have played his way in as an anchor role. Yep. Uh, look, I'm still on the fence about Maxwell coming in at seven. I mean, obviously he nearly got us home. But yeah, geez, you've got to look at his his choice to go after Boomer when we were, what, 35 off 34 needed with four wickets in hand. Just see that over out, you know, leave yourself needing maybe 31, 32 off the last five overs and you should get there in a canter. So yeah, a bit of a curious choice as it's well. It's really tricky. Yeah, it's really tricky with Maxi, isn't it? It's it's kind of live by the sword, die by the sword with him, isn't it? You know, but yeah, he, he does frustrate. He can knock tons of runs and then get out at a really bad stage when the game hasn't been won yet. Yep. Speaking of selection, there are a couple of interesting bits and pieces. So it was Abbott's second ever ODI after playing his first six years ago facing Pakistan in Sharjah. So a long time between drinks for him. Ash Agar played his first home ODI after 13 in other countries. And Cam Green was on debut as well. The West Aussie we've been talking about lots. He took the ball in the ninth over in his first delivery in international cricket, a dot ball to Virat Kohli. And he didn't pick up a wicket, but he, he had an okay start. Yeah, look, we'll talk about him a little bit later on. But, uh, I mean, look, not a an awe-inspiring start. He certainly didn't play a huge part in the game. But it's great to see him out there. And, and obviously, he's the, very much the, the next generation of cricketer coming through. So, great to see him make his debut. And on the Indian side, Natarajan was a, a debutant for them. And he picked up Labuschagne with his first wicket coming in. So, that's a decent start to ODIs for him. Yeah, well, he's had a, a, a cracking start to the summer. And we'll, again, we'll talk about him a little bit more in the, the T20s as well. Yeah, he sure has. Yeah, unfortunately, I didn't get to see any, but I did listen to a lot of the match on ABC Grandstand at work. And I enjoyed most of it, apart from Jim Maxwell constantly referring to left arm wristies when Yadav was bowling, <laughs> which was a bit unsettling. <laughs> no, I love yeah, the call of those blokes. <laughs> In the first T20I, uh, India 7 for 161. KL Rahul had 51 off 40 at the top and Jadeja had 44 off 23 at the end. Enrique's 3 for 22, the pick of the bowlers for the Aussies. Mitch Swepson had 1 for 21 off two overs on debut, picking up the prize wicket of Virat Kohli. So that's a pretty good first scalp. Australia in response, 7 for 150. Shahal 3 for 25 and not without controversy. Natarajan 3 for 30 on debut in the T20s. Yeah, just a few starts as well for the Aussies. I mean, Finch made 35, Darcy Short 34, Enrique's 30. So, yeah, it, it's pretty straightforward, though. The Aussies bowled really well until the death overs and Jardasia got India to a defendable score when it looked like they were probably going to make 130. And then for us, you know, we're traveling fairly well, 49 off 31 with Short and Enrique's set, and then four for 14 off the next 20 balls. And that, yeah, that's, kind of, that's kind of it. But yeah. 
I guess the, the big thing that you're alluding to is concussion gate. We have to obviously address this. This is yes. such a, anyone who maybe missed this. Uh, there was a, an incident with about four balls remaining in the Indian innings where uh, Jadeja's basically top edged one from Mitch Stark into the, basically into the logo on his helmet. And he's sort of continued for the next four balls and, and looked okay. But during the innings break, he happened to be substituted off. And there was a lot of talk about the fact that he kind of looked like he had a hamstring injury earlier in the innings. So, Well, that's right. He wasn't he, oh, running, was he? He was standing and delivering. No, so it was pretty clear that he had a dud hammy pretty early before the head knock. Yeah, that's it. So, I mean, I took a look at the rules surrounding the concussion substitute. And I have to say, most of it's pretty clear except for anything surrounding the following. So basically rule 1273 refers to the ICC match referee should ordinarily approve a concussion replacement request if the replacement is a like-for-like player whose inclusion will not excessively advantage his team for the remainder of the match. Yeah, there's a couple of interesting things here. So we obviously benefited from the, or when I say we, Australia obviously benefited from the first ever concussion uh, replacement when Labashane came in for Smith in the Ashes last year, and that was pretty good like for like. But the other interesting thing that, that sticks out there, Stewie, is you mentioned the match referee, who was none other than David Boone, who, of course, played with Justin Langer, and Langer was remonstrating <laughs> quite, uh, quite dramatically <laughs> between innings. And you can't help but wonder that Booney might have been more inclined to pay the sub because he was Aussie and he didn't want to be seen as favouring us. Yep, exactly. As I yeah, there's there's so many different things to look at, but yeah, I definitely worry that this maybe opens up a dangerous can of worms. Teams might be able to claim a loophole, bringing in a stronger bowler for a player that's that's concussed. I mean, for me, I look at it and I, I say, okay. India went in with four frontline bowlers. Jardasia was an all-rounder. He was going to bowl four overs anyway. So he's not as good a bowler as Chahal, but he's a kind of spinner. So I oh, guess he's very you can important. kind of look at that. Yeah, so no, he races. Could, yeah. yeah, he races through his overs. You know, you can four balls can be gone before you blink your eyes and you, you zero off four. So no, he's an important yeah. bowler for them, definitely. But obviously, Charles a bit more of a strike bowler than Jardes. Jardes is a guy who will usually get through his, you know, one for forty nine off his uh, off his ten overs in a in a, a one day or his four overs in a T twenty. You know, maybe pick up sort of, you know, one for twenty two around. Yeah, yeah, around those th- those sorts of things. So yeah, I mean, okay, he's not necessarily as like for like as the Smith and Labuschagne. I mean, that's probably almost as like for like as you could get out there, really. But, yeah, exactly. Um, but I think the biggest issue for me is that the correct concussion protocols weren't followed. No doctor came out after he was hit. No concussion assessment was completed until after the innings was completed. His helmet wasn't even replaced. Like imagine if he got struck again on the logo in the exact same spot. We could be talking about another fatality here. And that's that's the big issue that I have. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I heard uh, Peter Layla on Offsiders yesterday mention that it was within the rules because technically the doctor doesn't come out to the end of the over and it was the final over and so it didn't matter if the doctor came out, but you're absolutely right. If the helmet was damaged and look, was he really concussed? You and well, I will never I mean, know. You know, I mean, was it a loophole? <laughs> yeah, apparently he's been ruled out for the rest of the series with the concussion. I don't think you would have played anyway. Yeah, I don't think you would have. Exactly. I don't think you would have played anyway. But it's just, it is it's so dangerous. And and the thing is, if you look at that Smith one, I guarantee you before he'd hit the ground, the doctor would have been on his way out 
basically obviously that's probably a bit of an exaggeration but no no we'll actually yeah. remember it and Smitty wanted to stay on the field and they didn't let him like he was pissed off that they were dragging him so yeah I mean the reality is that Smith probably shouldn't have gone back on anyway he was clearly that concussed I mean he made another what 12 runs after that which you know he just was playing shots that he ordinarily wouldn't have played uh but it's and yeah, he did geez. miss the next test too he did. I just, as I say, I, I just really worry. And I, okay, technically, yes, you can wait if you wanted to. But as soon as that ball hits the helmet, especially where it did, you have to stop the play. You just, you have to. Mm. I mean, you're talking about a player's livelihood and a, and a player's life. Hard not to be a bit sceptical, though, given the hammy injury. But as Aussies, hard well, for us it. to complain after Sandpaper Gate. But 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 also at the same time, you know, looking at the history, I mean, we've just had the six-year anniversary of Phil Hughes', Phil Hughes death. Yeah, like, yeah. surely that alone has to be enough to say, if you get hit on the helmet, just take the five minutes. Yeah, well, what if it happened on ball one? You're absolutely right. I don't know why you would wait till the end of the over. If it happened on ball one and there could be five more bumpers after that, okay, not that's not likely in a T20, more like a test match. But still, yes, I agree with you. Any even inkling a doctor should be getting out there if we're serious about this stuff. In the second T20I, Australia 5 for 194. Matty Wade, first time as captain, had a wonderful 58 off 32. He was in magnificent form until a ridiculous run out, which we'll talk about in a sec. Smitty had 46 off 38. Natarajan, another great game, 2 for 20. India won with two balls to spare, thanks to Shikadawan, 52 off 36. And Hardik Panja, 42 off 22. I've got to say, I think he's been pick of the Indian players so far this summer. Mitch Swepson, pick of the bowlers for the Aussies, one for 25 off four, but it turned out to be just too little. Hardik Pandey is such a rock star, isn't he? He is just an absolute rock star. Ice in his veins. Yeah. Look, I mean, this one was definitely not one for the bowlers. As you mentioned, Natarajan was brilliant for India. Mitch Swepson was great for the Aussies. Every other bowler went for at least eight and a half and over, so not a not a good day to be a bowler. Wade played a blinder. Very, very lucky not to have been caught on 39. Very, very lucky not to have been caught about two seconds before he was run out. But oh, I mean, I mean, this was this was a fun game to watch. The the big thing for me, though, I think that probably cost us was the bowling decisions. So if you look at the first two overs, Sam's and Abbott bowled them, bowled really well. I think it was five off the first and four off the second. Yep. And then they bought Maxi on. Well, they bought AJ Tyon, who went for 15, and then Maxi, who went for 19 off the off the fourth over. So I just look at that and I think, why would you not go with what's just worked for the first yep, two overs? I mean, I agree. fair enough. If those the next two don't go so well, that's fine. But yeah, I mean, if those guys could have bowled another couple of overs and maybe had them sort of, I don't know, none for 18 off four, it puts huge pressure. It oh, sort yeah. of has the, the run rate required up to about 10. But geez, it's a game of millimetres as well. I mean, you, we say all of this. Two very close LBW appeals for Ty with his first two balls. Then he oversteps by a couple of millimetres and India takes 11 off the next three. Maxwell nearly has Rahul caught at short fine leg the first ball of his over and then goes for 19. It's I, I agree, though. When I was watching live, I thought, why would you make that change when the first two overs were pretty good? Like, it, it, it baffled me. I, I thought it was probably a plan. It was probably a plan that they were bowling to. But after those first two overs weren't all that expensive. I think they should have stuck with those two guys as well. Absolutely. You've got to, yeah, you've got to be prepared to call an audible. But look, at the same time, hats off to India. I mean, Darwin, Kohli and Pandya were superb. They ran really well between the wickets. They turned a lot of ones into twos. They snuck a lot of cheeky singles. They put away the bad balls. They only really got risky occasionally. That scoop six, though, from Kohli off AJ Ty, that was the shot of the series for me. 
absolutely oh, yeah, that insane. Was. <laughs> that was. So, Matty Wade hit a couple of nice ones. Smitty hit a really nice rap shot as well, which is unlike him. Yeah, there was. Yep. It, it was a very. It's the first full match I've watched this summer, and it was very entertaining. Didn't get the result we wanted, but uh, yeah, it was. A, it was a cracking game of cricket. That's it. And obviously we now turn our attention towards the last T20, but obviously into the test series for us now with it being a dead rubber. A little bit of a worry seeing Pukowski make one off 23 and Burns make four off 13 in the lead up match, but geez, how good was Cameron Green? Well, that's that's the thing, isn't it? Certainly there'll be more eyes looking at the tour match than the third T20, I dare say. Cam Green, you'd have to just about say he's punched his ticket into a test debut. I mean, he's been against arguably a full-strength, well, nearly a full-strength Indian bowling lineup, and he's he's made, what, 117-odd, where a lot of other players have struggled. And the interesting thing at the top, now, Marcus Harris would have had a really good chance because he's had a pretty good shield. He would have had a really good chance to make his case, but he only managed the 35 himself. If he'd made a 50 or above, there would have been some really tough selection. Uh, two out of those, Only two out of those three guys can play out of Burns, Pekofsky, and Harris. I dare say it will be Pukowski and Burns. I'd like to see it be Pukowski and Harris, but I don't think that's what will happen. I don't disagree with you at all. Now, Stewie, as I mentioned, the Southern Hemisphere summer of cricket is in full swing. We've got series in South Africa and New Zealand as well. Let's start with England and South Africa. And again, more controversy. Yeah, well, I mean, we'll look at the the actual game first before we get into the controversy because this is a yeah a little bit of an interesting one. So they've just completed a three-match T20 series, which was absolutely dominated by the Poms 3-0. South Africa made three for 191 in the third match, and they still got spanked. So Rassi van der Dusen's made 74 off 32. The Southers are feeling pretty good about themselves. And then Joss Butler and David Milan broke the all-time record for a second-wicket partnership. 167 run unbeaten standoff, just 14 overs. David Milan, the new uh, king of the cosmos. Well, yeah, very truly. I mean, 99 off 47. The poor bugger didn't even realise how close they were to the winning runs and nudged a single (laughs) instead of going for a four to bring up his ton. Oh, yes. A bit of a shame. But but no, you're right. The real talking point of this is the signs. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, so team analyst, for those that don't know, Nathan Lehman was spotted by TV cameras placing cards with messages such as 4E and 2C in in an attempt to provide information to Captain Owen Morgan. Now, you could be forgiven for thinking he was playing Battleship with someone at the other side of the field, but no. (laughs) There were apparently signals to suggest fielding positions and that that the South Africans didn't seem to like against particular English bowlers. Now, the ECB... All of that sort of stuff, yeah. Now, the ECB said the system was a live informational resource, and I quote, that the captain may choose to use or ignore as he wishes. They are not commands or instructions, and all decision-making takes place on field. It was also cleared by the match referee prior to the match, so there's no suggestion of wrongdoing there. So I guess the question is more, not is it within the rules of the game, but is it within the spirit of the game? Look, I, I really don't actually see this as being as big an issue as it's been made out to be. If you look at sports like the AFL, they've got runners. Cricket, they use runners as well. Basketball players can get messages on the fly from their their benches. Yeah, I just don't know if it's quite as big a deal as it's being made out to be. Like, I can understand, obviously, when you see something like that that's so different and so outside of the box, it's easy to sort of assume that it's outside of the spirit of the game. But, yeah, I personally don't have a huge problem with it. I mean, at the end of the day... Owen Morgan's a smart enough captain that he probably knows all this stuff anyway. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, what are your thoughts? Yeah, look, I know it would be exciting for me to disagree with you, but I agree with you 100%. It's no different to a runner running out messages 
when he brings out the gloves or bat or drinks, or drinks whatever, yeah. yeah, whatever it might be. It's no different to having the Duckworth Lewis information on a piece of paper. Who knows what else could be written on that piece of paper? So yeah, look, I don't know how much it will actually help. I don't know, you know, maybe it would be, but he'd be better off playing Battleship. But I do think that it's not. It's a bit of a storm in a teacup. This one. Mm. I actually think the bigger issue at the moment is the concerns with the South African camp having players as well as the English team having people testing positive for COVID inside their bubble in South Africa. Well, that's right. The uh, first ODI has now been postponed. And so it'll be very interesting to see that tour could be in jeopardy, I guess. I I think it's looking more and more likely that the second and third will also be abandoned. I, I think it's probably time to bite the bullet. Safety of the players is way more important at this stage. Oh, absolutely. And obviously tests are more important than anything too. So if they have to cut a couple of ODIs to ensure the test can still go ahead, then I'm thinking most people would be okay with that. Yep. And then finally, Shui, as you alluded to at the top there, we've got some very green tops in New Zealand. I mean, there was barely even a pitch there. Like it was, <laughs> there was all of these photos starting to circulate around social media of this green top in Seddon Park in Hamilton. You honestly, you could struggle to tell where the pitch stopped and the infield began. I, like no kidding. Like there's all this talk about how friendly it was going to be to the to the bowlers. Is it going to present uneven bounce? Will it swing? Both sides were absolutely dying to win the toss and bowl on it. It just looked like a bowler's paradise. And then Kane Williamson made a mockery of it. He sure did. So New Zealand 7 declared 5-1-9. West Indies made 138 and then had to follow on and made 247. Kane Williamson scored more than their whole first innings. And by a fair margin, 250 runs at a strike rate of over 60, which, which is just phenomenal. 34 but, fours look, and two sixes. All parts of the ground. I mean, the Windies got to none for 49 at the close of play on day three. So they were actually looking fairly solid, but then they lost 10 for 95, including their first three wickets for two runs in 15 balls. And the Kiwis actually took 15 wickets on day three. So it was just calamitous batting. The Windies were batting like it was a one-dayer. A lot of really poor dismissals. Even the runs they scored were, were very risky. A lot of shots in the air. Look, just a superb start to the test summer for New Zealand. Yeah, and for Kane Williamson, and absolutely hats off. No, no surprises that he won man of the match. Uh, they had a good spread of bowling too. So Southie had four for 35 with an economy of under two in the first innings. And then in the second innings, Neil Wagner had four for 66. A slightly higher economy, but good figures for him too. So absolutely, New Zealand have started their summer superbly. All right, Wagner. He was he was the only Kiwi who really stood up to the Aussies last time they played a series. And he had that thing absolutely hooping around corners in that second innings. It was it was like what we were expecting on day one. Absolutely love this New Zealand team. I'm still disappointed that they didn't win the World Cup last year. <laughs> I wonder if anyone outside of England's ever gonna get over that. Oh <laughs> uh, yes. And now, what made Stu say bloody hell? Well, the bloody hell this week has to come from the world of bodybuilding. Yuri Tolochko, a bodybuilder from Kazakhstan, the number one exporter of potassium. Well, (laughs) (laughs) so Yuri Tolochko has found love and he got married. Great news. Yeah. To a sex doll. Ooh. That he dated for eight months before he popped the question (laughs) after meeting her at a nightclub. Luckily, he was the only one who popped as well, but... uh, (laughs) 
Uh, eight months. I'm sorry, mate. You're moving far too fast. Uh, yeah, I know. Calm yeah. down. Jeez. But uh, no, the, the wedding was postponed twice, once by COVID and once after Tolochko suffered a broken nose and a concussion after dressing up as a woman for a transgender rally. Jeez. Unlike Ravi Jadeja, though, he actually had a doctor check him out right away. So oh. <laughs> No, look, and I'm guessing both, the first one was postponed because her family couldn't be shipped over in the boxes because of the <laughs> mail delay. <laughs> it's, it's so true. Oh, dear. Now, look, both of them were said to be stiff on the wedding night. And in a turn up for the books, <laughs> he gave her the blowjob. Oh, it's the gift that keeps on giving, isn't it? I'll tell you what, I have to say this, though. The dress was lovely. You do have to give her that. <laughs> oh, shit. Oh dear. So for finding that perfect someone who's actually a something, all I can say is what I imagine is pronounced Quanditozak. Bloody hell. Bloody hell. All right, Stewie. Well, plenty of basketball news to get through and we'll finish up our reviews this week as well as the preseason is well and truly knocking on the door. But I think we've got to start with the biggest perhaps news in Australian basketball, at least, and that's the retirement of Andrew Bogut. He was a gold medalist at the FIBA Under-19 World Cup in 2003. He was the National College Player of the Year 2005 and consensus first-team All-American also in 2005. He was an NBA champion in 2015. 2010 All-NBA third-team player, 2015 All-NBA defensive second team. Probably unlucky not to be in the, in the team in 2011 as well when he led the league in blocks. Yeah, great career. All-rookie first team 2006. And then, of course, he came home and had a uh, MVP year in the NBL as well in 2019. I'm not sure he deserved to win it, to be honest, but uh, he did have a very good season and led the Sydney Kings to the best record in the league that season. Played 706 games in the NBA. He played four Olympic campaigns, would have played five if they'd gone ahead this year, but he just can't do it for next year because the body has just broken down. So although his career stats in the NBA aren't sensational, just under 10 points per game, just under nine rebounds and one and a half blocks per game, he's well and truly one of the best Australian basketballers ever and will always be thought of that way, I think. Yeah, I mean, as I mentioned before, he was an All-NBA third-team player in the 09-10 season. Easy to forget that, you know, he, he was averaging 16 and 11, I think it was, and maybe a couple of blocks a game. And then he had that hideous dislocated elbow when Amari Stoudemire nudged him while he was going for a dunk. I actually read a really interesting article about that injury and, it, and it, it really helped Golden State and Milwaukee amazingly. Like Bogut was never the same player when he came back. He got traded to Golden State for Monte Ellis, which then allowed Clay Thompson to become who, who he is, or at least who he was before his injuries. And then Bogut was that perfect center for Golden State and their rise to dominance. And then even when he left Golden State, he helped them because his cap space allowed them to sign Kevin Durant. So yeah. he, he did a lot for Golden State. Yeah. And then and then the Bucks, on the other hand, were terrible with Ellison Jennings. And they ended up getting Giannis Antetokounmpo from the draft as a result of that. So he's, yeah, he had a great career and he was very, very helpful, I guess, is probably what I'm trying to say. So no, well done to Bogut and yeah, enjoy your retirement. Absolutely. I remember watching as many Utah Utes games in the college as, as I could. And, and I remember actually um, talking to you and one of our other basketball mad friends who we watched the draft with the other week, saying to you guys, like, this this guy could be number one pick. Like, uh, he's the real deal. One of the best passing big men, I think you could say the game has ever seen. Uh, yep. Perfect fit for that Golden State team. So what a sensational career. It's sad that injuries derailed. It would have been great to see him compete in five Olympics, but still a, a fantastic 
career and and one of the great things about him you know you might not agree with everything he says but he always said his mind and he was definitely authentic he wasn't one of those wooden cardboard robots that the sporting world often produces so you could always go to Bogues for a good quote very very passionate and one of the other things I guess that we just we did forget to mention was the fact that he was a 36 percent three-point shooter in his last year with uh with Utah in in the college so he actually was a very good three-point shooter early in his career so yeah not the role Golden State wanted him to play but he was certainly capable absolutely he could, he could have been the third splash brother <laughs> don't know about that but <laughs> no, no obviously not uh, he would have been a perfect player for Phil Jackson's triangle by the way perfect yes. like great passer fantastic passer yep now we go from the big news in Australian basketball to the biggest news in American basketball we've had another trade Russell Westbrook and John Wall will be trading places in Houston and Washington respectively yeah, I've been thinking about this one. I've listened to a lot of different opinions on this. and A lot of them were this whole, like, who lost this trade more? I think the <laughs> Wizards have actually done pretty well here. Now, I know there's a lot of Russell Westbrook haters out there, but you've got to look at this. John Wall has played 73 games in the last two seasons. Everything that he did well was around his athleticism and his explosiveness, which he won't have as much of after an Achilles. Very unlikely. Like, you know... Like when you think about, you know, the highlight reel shorter guys, you know, these guys that maybe six, five and under, they've always got at least a few long range highlights. Like with Vince Carter, I can distinctly remember him hitting a three to beat Boston when he was with Toronto, a three when he was playing for New Jersey to beat Miami, a three to beat San Antonio with Dallas. Sorry to bring that up, um, which was actually a travel I, was, I, will, I will add, but, but he's got a ton of these sort of three pointers to win games. Westbrook, I can think of that three to beat Denver, uh, a three to beat Sacramento, one to beat Golden State, a a few more of those. When I think of John Wall highlights, I can seriously only think of one highlight that isn't a dunk or a tough layup in traffic. So he doesn't have that jump shot aspect to his game. And I know Westbrook doesn't either, really, but... He had that big three against Boston in a game six to force a game seven, but then kind of... That's it. That was the one I could think of. Shut the bed in game seven. That was seriously... That was seriously the only one I could think of was that that sort of, yeah, sort of one dribble step into it from a couple of feet behind the line. So, so yeah, I mean, the, like there's a pick in there as well. That's almost inconsequential. It's lottery protected in 23, top 12 protected in 24, top 10 protected in 25, eight protected in 26, and then it becomes two second rounders. So it's likely to be a late first rounder. If the Rockets are lucky, maybe somewhere around about 11 or 12, but... Yeah, I, I really like what this does for the Wizards. I mean, okay, Westbrook's not quite what he used to be, but you look at Bradley Beal, you've got him, you've got Danny Advia, you've got Rui Hashimura, you've got Thomas Bryant, Davis Bertans off the bench, Troy Brown, Ish Smith, Mo Wagner. Like, these guys could push for a six seed. They legitimately could push for a six seed. Well, I'm going to hold my my retort to that because we have a mailbag question, Stewie. Oh, Yeah. From Sam, currently situated in Perth and a self-confessed total babe in personality. <laughs> Direct quote. Jeez, oh, I like Sam already. <laughs> so, so they say, hey guys, I'm an avid listener. Which of the best NBA teams to watch on League Pass this year? Mine at this stage are the Nets, Lakers and Celtics. I'd be curious to hear what you guys reckon. Thank you very much, Sam. We love all listeners, but we particularly love avid listeners. Hmm. I'll, I'll let you go first. So those are three very interesting teams that, that Sam's listed. Look, I'll let you go first on this. Well, the reason I wanted to hold off is because I think Washington is one of the really interesting teams. I think Russell Westbrook will be super hungry. I think he's got something to prove. And I think they will be an interesting team to watch. Bradley Beal, it could give him a new lease on life. 
Advi is a really exciting draft prospect that you mentioned. They've got a couple of other young guys in Hachimura and Bertans. And I absolutely agree with you. I think there's five or six teams that are locks in the East. And then I think nearly the rest of the East will fancy themselves as getting into that last couple of playoff positions. So I absolutely think that Washington will be one of the interesting teams to watch. With the Nets, Lakers and Celtics, agree with them 100%. The Lakers are better on paper than they were last season. The Celtics are a super exciting team just about every year. And the Nets, of course, have Durant and Kyrie Irving coming back from injury uh, and they're coaching by committee. So I think they could be interesting on a number (laughs) of reasons. I think they could be interesting on the kind of drama uh, potential. And I think the Clippers are another team that could be high on the drama scale, as will the Rockets, who are willing to get uncomfortable with James Harden. And then I guess the other one I would add, if you're interested in dunks, I would say that the New Orleans Pelicans, of course, with the former number one pick, Zion Williamson, who now has no minutes restriction, so he could be playing quite a lot of minutes there, although he's carrying too much weight. Watch for those injuries. And of course, if you love a pass like I do, how can you go past Dallas or Denver, the two best passing teams in the league? What do you reckon, mate? Well, that's probably a perfect segue into me because I definitely have the Mavericks as one of my teams. Luca will be an MVP candidate this year. I can guarantee you that. Absolutely. Whether he's wor- yeah, if he's working off screens with Chris Stapps, Paul Zingas, or Dwight Powell, I, I think they're going to gel really well on offense. I mean, obviously, Paul Zingas is the big if, and I'll talk about Dallas a little bit more when we do our season review of, of the Mavericks. But I, I really, really like the Mavs. In, you know, they've, they've upgraded in a lot of positions over the offseason. So I think they're going to be one of these teams that'll be really pushing for a, a Western Conference Finals, along with probably half of the West. But yep. Um, the Suns were another one for me. Um, oh, yeah. The good news Suns from the uh, from the bubble last year have have upgraded even more. So Chris Paul with Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton is going to be so much fun. Absolutely. Yeah, you could see a yeah a rebirth of Lob City, I guess, with with Ayton. I love the fact that they've got really solid shooters: Dario Saric, Abdul Nader, Javon Carter, Michael Bridges. These guys are all solid, like thirty five to forty percent shooters. So. I think they're going to be a really fun team to to work with. And the other one was the Sixers. I mean, the moves that Daryl Morey's made, it's kind of brought back that supporting cast that Embiid and Simmons had maybe two years ago when they seriously contended. So I'm kind of looking forward to seeing whether they can contend with the moves that they've made and, and also the moves that some of the other teams in the East have made. So I, I think those are my three that I was, you know, not, I didn't really want to go for the obvious ones, but yeah, definitely sort of Dallas, Phoenix and Philly are three that I'm, I can't wait to see. All good picks. And I think Philly has some drama potential there too because it could go well, but it could also go pear-shaped very quickly with their two stars as well. So definitely a good one to watch. Definitely. Thanks for that, Sam. Really, really great question. Yes, indeed. Keep them coming at SportBlokes on Twitter or SportBlokes at gmail.com. Now, Nath, just quickly before we get on to some of the other newsworthy bits of the NBA, I did want to just quickly throw a bit of a hypothetical at you. Now, obviously, we have spoken about the Washington side of that trade. We didn't really look at the Houston side of things. And um, obviously, John Wall, unlikely to be the same player he has been in the past. If you'd made this trade maybe in 2014, it would have been very, very interesting. I think a lot of people have said similar sort of things. Yes. Do you see James Harden in another jersey by the mid-season break? Well... I'll take a step back there. I was really surprised to see John Wall was younger than Russell Westbrook. For some reason in my mind, I thought John Wall was older, but John Wall's 30 and Russ is 32. So that's interesting. My understanding is they have the same length of contract. Correct. Harden's, Harden's obviously asked or indeed demanded a trade, but Houston hold all the cards. They've got him locked up for another two years. They're under no obligation to get rid of him. Anything could happen. Nothing would surprise me. He could be traded before the season starts. He could be traded on deadline day. He could be in their uniform come playoff time, if they even make the playoffs. So I think anything could happen there. What do you reckon? 
Yeah, I mean, the, the two teams that, that are sort of serious about it in Brooklyn and Philadelphia, I mean, obviously Philadelphia is the one that can offer a more enticing package for the Rockets in, in return. But obviously, they're not going to be able to keep it and beat and Simmons. So that's the big problem is that they're going to have to break up their big two in order to get Harden in. I think Harden's that's obviously foolish. older. Yeah. Oh, I agree entirely. And I think Brooklyn would be as well, quite frankly. Yeah. I'd yeah. like to see Brooklyn run it back. But yeah, no, uh, no, me too. Yeah, it's, look, it's hard to see James still being in a Rockets jersey at the end of the season. I'm not sure about the mid-season break, but yeah, I, I think he, he has to change teams really. Couple of other bits and pieces before we get into our recap, Stewie. Eyes raised over the duration of LeBron James' recent extension. Eyes raised, but certainly no real surprises there. No. In all likelihood, that is the year that Bronny will be able to enter the NBA draft. There's been a lot of talk from Adam Silver about allowing high school players to enter the draft again. And LeBron's always talked about his greatest achievement being something that hasn't happened yet and his desire to play with Bronny, which, look, as a parent, I think that would be amazing. I, I, the opportunity to be at the top of your profession with your kid would just be the best thing in the world. I did see an awesome tweet, though, that said the amount of tanking and tampering about to go down in 2023 oh, yeah. Yeah. will never be topped. Yeah. No doubt in my mind, Rich Paul will run out the tunnel as a special guest referee. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, how how old will he be then, though? Like, does the team really want to mortgage their future selecting Bronny? And look, he may be magnificent as well, but they might only get a year or two out of LeBron and he'll be pretty old by then. So, yeah, the team might regret that move if they do go ahead with that. Well, what would he be, 38, 39? So, yeah, he's, he's going to be towards the end of his career. The thing that I really hope is that Bronny ends up being drafted by a place that LeBron would probably never have considered playing, like Atlanta or Memphis or somewhere like that. I think well, that would be this? amazing. Anthony Davis has just signed on for another five years. The Lakers roster is looking magnificent. He might have a really tough choice. <laughs> Bronny might be signed by a really crap team and LeBron might have a really good chance at another ring. Will he go and leave that chance on the table? Absolutely, he will. A hundred percent. All right, watch this no, space. I, I That's unequivocal. Absolutely, no, I absolutely guarantee Look, at the end of the day, by the time it gets to 2023, LeBron will probably have an, at least another one ring. So like, he's not the sort of guy who needs to, to win every single season. You saw what he did in his first season in, the, in LA where the Lakers were absolutely hideous. I think the opportunity for him to play with Bronny, and I don't think he would want to play against him, LeBron would not pass that up. There's no way. Mm. A risk of turning into TMZ, Stewie, there's uh, some uh, other interesting stories going on with ex-players' wives and current players. Yeah, Malik Beasley being seen on a date with Larsa Pippen, the former wife of Scottie Pippen. Very interesting one. I suppose the things to keep in mind here, Larsa Pippen was 22 when Beasley was born, actually the same year that Scotty and the Bulls started their second three-peat. <laughs> uh, and Beasley was actually married at the time too, although his relationship with Montana Yo was on the rocks already, so they are very much going through a divorce now. I don't really understand the drama though. I mean, Pippen is a very attractive woman for that age. Beasley clearly gets along well with her. If they both mutually agree that this is the right move for them, then let them enjoy each other's company. Maybe just tell your wife before so she's not publicly blindsided, Malik. That's my only advice. She's uh, certainly got a penchant for NBA players, doesn't she? He's not the first and he won't be the last. And apparently her son... I think she was with with Tristan Thompson before uh, before the Kardashian debacle, yeah. And apparently her son was uh, pissed off on Instagram that his mum was dating someone more than half her age. But anyway, all play to her. Four play to her. (laughs) So, Stewie, time to talk about your favourite subject in the NBA, jerseys. 
jerseys yes we've had a, another few we spoke about them last week there's been a, another couple that have been dropped so new design for the lakers a bit of a throwback to the elgin baylor jerry west days which i i don't mind actually they, they've kind of gone for that that old school blue color that they had in the 60s what are, what are your thoughts oh it's hard to argue with those foundation jerseys isn't it yeah i must admit i'm a, I'm a big big fan of the throwback so i do like those i mean again bringing the blue into like the 2020 edition is is kind of interesting but Definitely, uh, definitely like the old school ones. Now the Brooklyn Nets. This is pretty hideous. Oh, it's designed by a five-year-old, I think. Yeah, I've I've got them looking like a high school student started mind mapping a jersey and kind of stopped halfway through. <laughs> yeah, fair. Yep. Like it's not great. It's kind of like someone's graffitied on the like the Melbourne United jersey. It's um. It's yeah, pretty, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Pretty hideous. It's got the crayon. I, th- I actually thought it was a, thought it was a David Barlow jersey at first, but uh, yeah, it's not not good. <laughs> Not good. Now, we've got a, a fun one here at Cleveland. What are your thoughts on this one? Yeah, the Cleveland one looks like it's been designed by a serial killer sending a ransom note. Yeah. So this one, I suppose I have to describe to people. So what we've kind of got on here is the traditional Cleveland C and then a whole bunch of random fonts for the rest of the letters. But uh, what if I told you that all of those letters actually represented bands or performers that are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? I would say, okay, that makes sense. So you've got the LE from the Sex Pistols, the V from David Bowie, the E from Metallica, the L from Led Zeppelin, the A from Nirvana, the N from NWA, and the D from Pink Floyd. It is just such a shame that it looks so shit, though. It still looks shit, yeah. it's The reference is lost, I think. It looks more like... I'm going to start calling them the Cleveland Ransom Notes from now on. Yes. (laughs) The Cleveland Kelly Killers. (laughs) (laughs) If only... Oh, perfect. <laughs> oh, dear. So I guess we move on to the Houston Rockets. They've gone with a slightly different color scheme than usual. They've kept the red and the white, but they've gone for a, a cyan or a, a light teal color, I guess. Yeah, a little bit reminiscent of the OKC colors, but I can see a trend here. Half the fucking league wants to be blue, apparently. Mm, yes, we'll get to a, another one fairly soon as well. Now, the Miami Heat one, they obviously had a huge response to their Vice jerseys, these uh, these bright pink ones. But what they've actually done now is they've gone for a bit of a fade. So starting on the left-hand side in that pink and kind of working their way across to that really light blue, I really, really like these jerseys. Yep, me too. Love the pink ones, love the fade. They're one of the few good ones, i got to say. And they're definitely the sort of thing that kind of actually reminds you of Miami a little bit, That just the way that they, they kind of pop out. So, yeah, I, I really like that one. And then we'll finish off on a low, the Milwaukee Bucks. Yep, more blue. Yeah, blue on blue, just to, to go a different direction. So they've got a really boring light blue and a really boring dark blue and a really boring font. So mm. I'm, I'm really not sure what they've done with this, but uh, yeah, not, not, a, not a great year for New Jersey. But uh, the ones that are good are really good. Unfortunately, the ones that are bad are really bad. Another cynical attempt to uh, print money, I dare say. Yes, uh, just quickly before we get into the the schedule and the rest of the uh, the reviews, I just wanted to take a quick moment to send some prayers out to Carl Anthony Towns. The dude lost his mum in April, and he's actually revealed that he's now lost seven family members to COVID, including his uncle in the last few days. Ugh. That's a lot for a 25-year-old to deal with. Oh, it's terrible. Absolutely it, terrible. It really is. This Major thing is real. Yeah. It is. It yeah. is. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. And then I guess finally, Stewie, before we finish up our recaps we've got the start of the schedule there a couple of really good games to to kick off the season with golden state at brooklyn obviously 
Golden State visiting Kevin Durant and the LA Derby, the Lakers and the Clippers for one of the last times at Staples Center because LA Clippers have a brand spanking new stadium that they're building and could be empty and shit if Paul George and Kawhi bail. But anyway, that's a really good start as well for the for the season. Yeah, it could be back to the Loy Vaught and uh, Gary Grant 1990s Clippers team. Danny Manning, <laughs> we... yeah, yep. Yeah, well, at least Danny Manning was half decent. Yeah, but, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, that's true. Some some pretty average teams. Louis Vaught was actually pretty good. I shouldn't I shouldn't joke about him, but he was uh, okay. I I do like this as a, a very very good opening night. I, I think it would have been a lot better if Clay Thompson was playing. But yeah, getting to see the whole Durant playing against his old team, I think that's going to be a cracker to start things off. And and yeah, Clippers and Lakers, just like we started last season. Uh, I think this is going to be an absolute cracker. Absolutely. Then we've got some interesting Christmas games too, some juicy ones, a couple of ones we predicted and a couple of others. Yeah, I mean, obviously good on you for picking the Nets and Celtics. You did uh, did very well with that. They have gone in a slightly different fashion though. I, I really, really like the, uh, the the Clippers and Nuggets getting to, to play a, a rematch of their semifinal last year. I love the idea of Luka versus LeBron in, in that Dallas Lakers. Oh, yeah. I, I don't mind the Warriors and Bucks, but I really don't like the Heat and Pelicans. That that one makes no sense to me. Uh, well, I guess it's the Zion stuff, isn't it? And the Heat made the NBA Finals last year. So, you know, two big teams. I think they've got it wrong, though. I think Heat and Bucks would have made more sense. Yeah, I do agree. Yeah, the, it's the Zion is. factor, though. And then, but Warriors-Pelicans, that's fine. Yeah. yeah. So you, could, you could have a bit of fun with that. So I think they've kind of got that round the wrong way, if I'm, if I'm really honest, but... Look, I'm not going to complain. At this stage, we'll take what we can get. Obviously, with all this COVID stuff going on, if we can just get those games played, I'll be happy. And that's a huge day on the sporting calendar because it's obviously Boxing Day here in Australia. So we've got the Boxing Day test and five NBA games. What a juicy, juicy proposition. So we'll go with our recaps and look forwards. We'll start with the Southwest Division. Houston finished 44-28. and 28. They lost to the Lakers in the conference semis 4-1. The longest losing streak was eight games between the 5th of November and 19th of November. Their longest losing streak was four games twice. And I guess the big note for me was that when you look down the, the list of results, Clint Capella, 20 rebounds, 20 rebounds, 20 rebounds, 21 rebounds, 23 rebounds, 18 rebounds. Why the hell did they trade him? It's hard to know. It's it is kind of hard to know. I mean, at the time, look, I'll admit, I kind of I kind of overboard into the small ball experiment. But yeah, you're right. It didn't work. They should. It was have just such themselves. a perfect fit for them. Yeah, yeah. No, I completely agree. This was a team that was one decent Chris Paul hamstring away from probably making the finals the previous year. So, yeah, the regular season Rockets curse strikes again, and yes. now their future is looking so bleak. It's like. It's not great. Like if you'd put John Wall into Marcus Cousins with James Harden five years ago, you'd have been over the moon with it. But I think it could be a race to see who's out of the season first with injury, sadly. <laughs> Kentucky alum will be very happy to see Boogie and John Wall paired up again together. I think there'll be some intrigue with that team. I think it could go any way. I think they could win 50 games or they could win 20 games. I think it's, it's going to be very interesting. Well, here's the thing though. PJ Tucker's 35. Damari Carroll's 34. Harden and Gordon, 31. John Wall and DeMarcus Cousins are both 30. And a lot of those guys have major Injury injuries. Prone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're an, they're an old team. Yeah. Their only decent player under the age of 30 is Christian Wood. And he was a good pickup, it's got to be said. But yeah, no, you're right. And I think in this season, even more so than others, I think depth and availability is really important. Health 
It's huge, so, and they don't yeah. have a lot of it. Yeah, so. no. It's, so, yeah, okay, you probably convinced me. It's probably looking more like a, a poor season <laughs> I, than a good one. I think this could easily end up blowing up, which is good news for me as a Thunder fan. Obviously, we could potentially get another lottery pick thanks to yeah. the Chris Paul trade. So, yeah, well, the uh, Russell Westbrook experiment didn't last long, did it? One season. Mm, no, so I'm certainly barracking for the Rockets being rubbish. Yeah, no, fair fair call too. And as a Spurs fan, I, I am as well. <laughs> Speaking of Spurs rivals, Dallas Mavericks, 43-32. and 32. They lost in the first round to the Clippers, of course. Their longest winning streak was five games twice. Their longest losing streak was only two games on eight different occasions. So they were pretty good after a loss. Dallas is probably the ultimate if team for me right now. I can see them trending up massively if and only if Chris Stapp's pausing is can stay on the court. Oh, it's I don't huge. Know. Yeah, he's the yeah, lead Definitely. Like the, they had a really good back end of the season. They were looking set to give the Clippers a good run before Porzingis hurt himself. They drafted really well. They picked up Josh Richardson, who gives them a really nice defensive guy. Who can yeah, I like that pickup for them. Yeah, like he can guard three different positions. They'll He'll benefit be from Luca too. He'll love playing well, he, with Luca. He will. Yeah, he will. So like the Mavericks are the sort of team that'll be good enough until KP comes back because they're really deep at every position except maybe kind of small forward. But I think this is a team that will probably look back on last season and feel like they made a really good stride and put themselves in a position so that this this year they should be contending for a top three to four seed if all goes well. And yeah, that's, that's a big fair. If. Yeah, no, that's fair, I think. I mean, as I said before, the, the Luca Dwight Powell pick and roll, I think could easily be one of the best in the league. Dwight Powell is so bouncy. Like he's got just such an amazing ability to to roll and catch lobs, finishes well inside. I think the only sad thing for me with Dallas is I feel bad for Boban being stuck on the bench. Mm. So, no, spec- we do good things Boban. from Dallas. Yeah, definitely. Next, we have Memphis, 34-39. and 39. They lost to Portland in the play-in game. Their longest winning streak was seven games between the 5th and 18th of January. The longest losing streak was six games between the 18th and 30th of November. They started slow, came back, kick-started by their seven-game winning streak that I mentioned, and then nearly blew it, sputtering pre- and post-shutdown, going two and six in the bubble, but getting a key win on the last day of the regular season against a Milwaukee team that was resting pretty much their whole team. Yeah. Do you, do you know what, though? I actually completely forgot the Memphis Grizzlies were in the league over the offseason. They did that little. Like, <laughs> like, uh. like I'm, I'm not sure if they're looking to tank because of the Jaron Jackson Jr. injury. I don't know when he's actually coming back. But, like, all they did was pick up Mario Hazonia and Gorgie Jang, who, I mean, neither of those guys are going to be particularly huge contributors to this team. The problem is, though, I don't think that they're quite shit enough to end up deep in the lottery. So... I don't really understand what they're doing. I don't really like their roster. I think they're probably going to end up about the same spot as they, they were last season. And they've got some pretty poor contracts. Like Jangs is at uh, 17 million. You've got Jonas Valanciunas at 15 million. Justice Winslow at 13 million. Yeah, I think they're going to be another 10 seed, maybe end up with a draft pick around the 10 to 12 range again, which is not ideal. Yeah, I think you're right. I think they'll be slightly worse, especially if that injury to Jaron Jackson Jr. is a lengthy one. I, I expect them to dip as well, definitely. Mm. Next was my Spurs, 32-39. and 39. They did not make the playoffs for the first time in a long time. The longest winning streak was three games four times. The longest losing streak was eight between the 10th and 23rd of November. And i got to say, looking at all the teams across this process... That period in November was so important to so many teams and pretty much scuttled our season as soon as it began. Do you know what, though? All the shit that went on in San Antonio and you guys finished, what, one game out of the play-in game? Yep, and we played less games than most teams. If a few different things had gone our way and oh, that 
lost to the 76ers really hurt as well because we might have made yeah. that playing game. Was it Shake Milton? I Shake think Milton, yeah, yeah. Like, we let him back in. We let him back in. He hit a massive three to win it for him. It was it was heartbreaking, yeah. that one. I mean, look, I'll let you kind of comment on where you think the Spurs are going. I'm not really enthused by their direction at the moment. Uh, like, what is the plan? Is it to flip LaMarcus Aldridge to, like, to a contender at the deadline, maybe start a rebuild from there? Like, what what is the plan, do you think? I think the the plan seems to be to load up on three and D guys. Uh, I think small ball works in the regular season. I think the idea will be establishing a winning culture. There's a lot of Spurs fans that think Demar should go, but he was really good. Uh, one of few players to average twenty five and five over fifty percent. I actually I think he's a consummate pro, and I think he's really important for the team. Both him and Lamarcus are expirings. So they could be interesting trade pieces. I don't mind if we hold on to DeMar. I think we should flip LaMarcus if we can, but only if we can get a good deal. I don't mind if we take on salary and tank. The next two drafts are meant to be really good. So, hey, give us some dodgy salary and your first rounder. That's fine with me. And in the meantime, you know, our 3 and D guys will develop. I fully expect Devin Vassell to be a good defender. He seems to be. Lonnie Walker will take the next step. DeJounte expects to take the next step. Keldon Johnson. So there's a lot of really intriguing young pieces on this team. And I think we'll be a defensive beast as well. So although I think it could be a couple of lean years, if we play our cards right and acquire some draft picks, I think we could bounce back in a couple of seasons with some good drafting. I'm intrigued to see what Bellinelli leaving does because with Aldridge potentially on the move, that kind of leaves DeMar DeRozan, Rudy Gay and Patty Mills as the only veterans on the team with any kind of voice. Which is all the more reason to keep him. Absolutely. I think Derek White is someone that might step into a leadership role. We held on to Portal as well. So look, you know, I think if we play our cards right over the next couple of seasons, like I said, it might not be too bad for too long. Yeah, Derek White's an interesting one. He's actually a little bit older than you'd think. I think he's about 26. Which is exactly why it's his time to step into a leadership role, definitely. And Mm. I think that Paddy Mills would have blooded him quite well along with the coaching stuff. Mm, I hope so. I mean, look, obviously... Yeah, I've seen you be a Spurs fan for a long time and, and it, it just seemed so Since weird not having them in the playoffs. Yeah, and, and, and what did they, that's the second time they've missed the playoffs in all of that time. So yep. it's uh, it, it was very weird. And I guess, yeah, as I say, you, just, you hope that they have a plan behind them because on the outside, it doesn't look like the direction's particularly amazing. But I guess you've got to trust the Spurs organization that they know what they're doing. Oh, I think stockpiling three and D guys in the modern NBA is not a terrible strategy. Maybe get Robert Covington to come in and be your center then. (laughs) And then finally, we've got New Orleans, 30 and 42. Their longest winning streak was four games between the 24th and 30th of December. Their longest losing streak was 13 in that period, mid to late November and early December. They went two and eight in their first 10 and had an outside chance of the play-in game, but went two and six in the bubble and scuttled any chance of that. The Zion injury, of course, was a big thing. I don't know what to make of the Pelicans, really. I mean, they've obviously handed the keys over to Zion and Brandon Ingram. But the more I look at it, the more I kind of worry that Eric Bledsoe and Lonzo Ball might struggle to coexist. So I'm not sure about that part of the dynamic. Mm, I mean, their future, yeah, their, their future looks really good in terms of all the draft picks they've got. I mean, their core, for the most part, looks pretty good. Um, guys like Nikhil Alexander-Walker and Jackson Hayes could be guys in a couple of seasons who, who could be very, very useful for them. I love getting to see what Will Magnay can do off the bench for them. I certainly don't think they move up the ladder a, a whole lot this season, but I've, as you mentioned before, Zion without a minutes restriction will be fun. 
The Stephen Adams pickup for me is one that is kind of interesting. I mean, firstly, obviously his contract, $29 million is an absolute shocker to have to eat, but the dynamic of him and Zion taking up the same real estate inside, like they don't really have much in the way of shooting outside of maybe JJ Redick and, and Ingram. I was actually surprised to see he was a 39% shooter from six attempts a game last year from three. Like that's, that's very, very surprising. I didn't think mm. he was that good a shooter, but, mm. but he seems but to yeah, be improving. Just, I think he's taking the next step. Look, I always said he was basically a poor man's Kevin Durant, and I I still stand by that. I'm a bit more optimistic about them than you. I I think that that they could challenge for the playoffs. I think think your question about Ball and Bledsoe is a really interesting one. I think Adams is a good pickup. Okay, granted, the, the money's huge, but... I don't know. I think they could challenge. I mean, Zion is is a beast offensively. He's very hard to stop when he's got a head of steam. So I think they'll hover around that eighth to tenth seed. Yeah. Mm, yeah. No. Exactly. I think there'll be a similar spot to where they were last season. But I think most of what New Orleans is doing is with an eye to maybe a season or two down the track. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. And then finally, Stewie, we go to the Central Division, the Milwaukee Bucks. 56 and 17. They lost to Miami in the second round in only five games. The longest winning streak was 18 games between the 11th of November and 15th of December. I believe that might've been best for the league. Their longest losing streak was three games between the 7th and 10th of March. Although it must be said that they also lost three games in a row to Miami. It was a very surprising result in that second round, wasn't it, Stewie? Yeah. I mean, obviously the injury to Giannis very, very rapidly uh, saw them lose control of, of that series, but I mean, do we tarnish the Bucks with the same brush as the regular season Rockets, or is it a little bit too early? Oh, geez. Yeah, I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. Like They've had a couple of failures. Dis- two very disappointing playoff exits in the last two years. So, yeah. Like, is this? I, I sort of almost wonder if this is finals or bust for the Bucks. I think that's fair. I, I do think that's fair. Although, I guess if, if Giannis signs the Supermax, then... They've got hopefully a few years to work around him. But yeah, no, if they don't do well this year, there could be big changes afoot. Did you see that uh, Chris Middleton, uh, I can't remember who else it was, but they actually gave Giannis a pen for his birthday. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant. Love it. So, yeah, I mean, like the supporting cast, it, it served them well in the regular season. They just didn't really show up against Miami. And once Giannis went down, they just didn't have any real support for Chris Middleton and they got taken apart. So, I mean, if you look forward, they've gone all in on Drew Holiday. They, they certainly have. Yeah, certainly just mortgage their future. But what do you think of their upgrades in terms of the supporting cast? So, like, obviously, Bryn Forbes has come across from San Antonio, Tory Craig. I think the DJ Augustine signing is probably one that's not getting enough enough of a mention. Um, oh, look, I'd probably put the other two signings ahead of that. I think DJ Augustine might be a little bit past it. He never really lived up his, to his potential out of college, I felt. But I think Bryn Forbes is a really good spot-up shooter. Tory Craig's a really good junkyard dog kind of guy that every championship team needs. So, yeah, no, I agree. I think they have upgraded. But, geez, they spent a lot to get Drew Holiday. I actually really like DJ Augustine. He was the starting point guard for the Orlando Magic that took a game away from the Toronto Raptors and also the Milwaukee Bucks in game one for those Orlando teams that weren't amazing. I think he's going to be a really, really decent backup. I mean, look, the Torrey Craig three and D sort of, sort of stuff is going to be brilliant. I I just don't think that they can make any excuses unless Giannis gets hurt. Yeah, no, that's fair. They absolutely will be wanting to make those finals and they'll be very disappointed if they don't. 
Next, we have the Indiana Pacers, 45 and 28. They lost to Miami in four games in the first round. Their longest win streak was five games on three different occasions. Their longest losing streak was six games between the 2nd and 11th of February. It's hard to think of anything else but TJ Warren, isn't it, when it comes to the Pacers? Well, yeah, I mean, he's certainly the first thing that, that really pops up. I mean, obviously, he's emerged as a, a bit of a beast this season, especially in the bubble. Look, all things considered, this was a pretty decent season for the Pacers. I mean, okay, they got smoked by Miami, but Victor Oladipo only played 19 yeah, games. major injury problems. And it allowed the rest of their, their core to get a lot of good time together. I mean, Demarta Sabonis and Malcolm Brogdon were excellent. Jeremy Lamb started looking like a, a, the sort of player I think a lot of people thought he could be out of UConn all those years ago. I think the interesting part of this for me was hearing that there was a possible sign and trade to get Gordon Hayward for Miles Turner, but Boston actually turned that down. So I guess I wonder if that maybe speaks to the sort of trade value that Miles Turner will hold, Yeah, which, another, is, which is not much. Another contract that isn't aging well. And Sabonis made an all-star game, didn't he? So that he was did. Yeah, so that, he was a great pickup for them. But I, I guess the big thing for the Pacers it seems like they're very content to run it back. They haven't made any real moves this offseason. I like the decision, giving this roster a chance to play at full strength for at least half the season before potentially looking to try and push Miles Turner out the door, I think is a good decision. Oladipo should be back to full strength. And I think the Pacers could be a really, really decent contender in the East. Oh, they'll be hoping to make the playoffs. Absolutely. Definitely. Well and truly, yeah. No, they yeah. should be pushing for a, top, for a four. top four or five. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, agreed. Now, gets a bit lean from here. Chicago, 22 and 43. Their longest winning streak was two games on three different occasions. Their longest losing streak was eight games between the 30th of Jan and the 21st of February. And the outlook isn't all that exciting for them, is it? Yeah, it pains me to say this, but the Bulls are the first team in a trio of trash coming up. <laughs> My childhood really wants them to be good so badly, but they just aren't like... Zach Levine's one of these guys, puts up good numbers on a bad team. Yep. Kobe White and Wendell Carter, they showed glimpses of real quality, but Laurie Markinen, like he should be a 2010 guy by now, a legitimate second option, but he's a seven-footer taking more than half his shots from three. Yeah, I wasn't a big fan of his in college. I thought he was soft as. Uh, and look, I'll be honest, I, I actually think he's done better in the NBA than what I expected. I thought he was had really big bust potential from what I saw. But still, as you say, as a big guy, he he's... Well, as I say, he's a bit soft. Yeah, well, I mean, if you, if you look at his figures from last season, uh, I don't have the exact stats on me, but I think it was around about the 14, 15 points a game and uh, and, and about six rebounds. But it's I think the biggest thing for the Bulls is their shooting. If you look at their top 11 scorers last season, only Wendell Carter Jr. shot more than 45.7% from the field. Most of their guys are hovering around the high 30s, low 40s. So it's just not good enough fourth worst offensive rating in the league horrible rebounding team they didn't buy into Jim Boylan at all so <laughs> like they they just didn't they just no. could not they couldn't get on on the same page as him Billy Donovan I guess will be a better voice for them he's quite good with these younger teams but geez Otto Porter needs to have a huge comeback season and it's it's just hard to expect anything other than rubbish from the Bulls they didn't even have a super exciting draft. So, yeah, more lean no, years ahead God, for no. the city of Chicago, I think. Yep. Now, the pain continues, as you alluded to. Next, we have the Detroit Pistons, 20 and 46. Their longest winning streak was two on three different occasions. Their longest losing streak was seven between the 8th and 26th of February. Ah, uh, yes, the old Detroit Fort Wayne Zolna power forward Pistons. <laughs> Not yep. good. 
So how do we sum this up? The Pistons only had three guys that played 60 or more games last season. So Christian Wood, he's gone. Gone. Langston Galloway, he's gone. gone. Thon Maker, he's gone. He sure is. Tony Snell played 59, he's gone. Bruce Brown played 58, he's gone. Jeez. So a lot of the guys that played the big amount of games for them are nowhere to be seen. Derek Rose looked pretty good, but geez, can he really be your team's leading scorer considering? Like, that's mm. not a good sign. Mm. Blake Griffin played 18 games and averaged less than 16 and 5. So he's, you know, a rusty sort of coming back from injury. Andre Drummond was their best player by an absolute mile, and they sent him to Cleveland for Brandon Knight, John Henson, and a second rounder. Jesus, like, John Henson's like, still in the league. Crikey. Like, what are, you, what are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. Like, there were only two guys last season in the league that averaged one and a half blocks and one and a half steals a game. Anthony Davis, who was a borderline MVP candidate. Absolutely. And Andre Drummond. Yep. I mean, they were middle of the pack defensively, thanks mostly to Andre Drummond. Offensively, they were absolutely abysmal in every category except three-point shooting. And guess what? Of their top nine shooters percentage-wise, only Svee Mikhailuk and John Henson, who takes about half a three-pointer a game, are returning. Oh, jeez. Yeah. I dare say there might be a little bit more optimism with them compared to Chicago. Sadiq Bay could be a handy little player out of Villanova. The interesting ones are Jeremy Grant, who was... Excellent on a good team, but maybe overpaid on a very, very average Detroit team. Mason Plumley again, probably overpaid for him. And Leangelo Ball, okay, the worst of the Ball brothers. There's a bit of intrigue there, I guess. Yeah, when the fuck did they do that? <laughs> and why uh, did they do that? As yeah. well, I, <laughs> and then there's Jaleel Okafor too, but he's only 24. He's turned into a bit of a bust given how highly he was selected. I mean, the, there was a legitimate choice between him and Carl Anthony Towns, and one has been very good and the other's been... Pretty poor. He's lucky to still be in the league in many ways. But he's only 24, so maybe there's still hope for him. But doesn't that also really sum up how bad things are for the Pistons when you're having to decide between Mason Plumley and Jalil Okafor oh, yeah. as your starting centre? Like, yeah, yeah. Like, it's not a good sign. You're 100% right, though. They overpaid for Jeremy Grant. They're already overpaying for Blake Griffin, who's probably going to break down again. They drafted pretty well. I like the look of Sadiq Bay and Killian Hayes. Isaiah Stewart's another one as well who should be really, really good. But oh, yeah, he could be handy. Yeah, another big, of course. It's, it's definitely back to the lottery for the Pistons, though. Speaking of back to the lottery, finally, we've got the Cleveland Ransom notes. They finished 19 and 46. Their longest winning streak was three games between the 19th and 24th of December. The longest losing streak was eight games between the 26th of November and the 12th of December. Ah, uh, the Cleveland ransom notes. <laughs> yeah, nothing like having over $60 million of your cap tied up in Kevin Love and Andre Drummond, right? Jeez. Someone I mean, I guess you've got them. to. Yeah, like I know you've got to spend it somehow, but uh, I mean, and again, I don't know. I just spoke about how good Drummond played last season, but it's still such an overpay having him at like $30 million. It's ridiculous. Mm. Another fairly poor season for the Cavs. Well and truly, it's Colin Sexton's team now, whether you like it or not. Oh, jeez. Which, again, doesn't not a great well. sign. Yeah. No, it doesn't. I mean, the whole John Beeline experiment was a disaster. Nobody respected his decisions. He wanted to run them through basic drills, which I guess when you're a team as bad as Cleveland, probably actually wouldn't have been such a bad idea. But And he was straight out of college, so he's used to being a college coach. Exactly. JB Bickerstaff will probably give him a little bit more of an identity, maybe relate to the players a little bit better. But yeah, they, they're not really going to have a choice, but they probably need to just tank hard again. I mean, the next two drafts are strong, so it kind of makes sense. I think with that roster, Stewie, they don't need to tank. I think they'll do it without even trying. Yeah. 
Nothing. So, and I guess you know, for the, Aussies, the only curiosity is Dante Exum's on the team, so he might get some decent minutes on a very bad team. Well, it's funny you say that because one of the two things I said that was most exciting for me about the Cavs was the, the trio of Dante Exum, Thon Maker, and Matthew Delavadova. Yeah, yeah, fair, fair. And all, all three of them need to have bounce back years, and they probably will get a lot of garbage time minutes, so lots of opportunities. Mm. But uh, Isaac Okoro is the other one. I'm actually looking forward to seeing how he goes. We could have a game where there's three Aussies starting for the same team. Mm, we could. We could. It's unlikely. If they played Philadelphia and they had a couple of Aussies starting, we could have five out of ten Aussies starting in a game, potentially. Oh, that would be good. But if that's the best intrigue, then not good. Yeah, yeah, not no, you're right. Yeah. And now, this week in sport history. December 7th, 1995, the NBA settles the strike of league referees with them returning on the 12th of December. This saw an end to a 68-day standoff during which the league employed an army of substitutes who, according to the Knicks' Charles Oakley, were, quote, terrible, saying that they need five of these guys to equal one of the regular refs. <laughs> it was actually so bad that they started the season with only 41 referees and had to run two-man crews as opposed to the regular three. After the referee lockout, legend Jake O'Donnell retired after 27 seasons. He was also an American League umpire from 68 to 71 and worked the NBA Finals for 23 consecutive wow. years, remaining the only official to work all-star games in two major professional sports. There was one good thing to come out of it, though. Bill Kennedy, who was actually one of the stand-in umpires, became one of the longer-tenured referees in the league, so he's done very, very well for himself. December 8th, 1940, in the National Football League Championship game held at Griffith Stadium, Washington, the Chicago Bears beat the Washington football team, <laughs> Redskins at the time, 73-0. Good for the most one-sided victory in NFL history. It was also the first NFL title game broadcast on national radio. Amazingly, the Redskins had the same amount of first downs as the Bears with 17, but the Bears intercepted an incredible eight passes. Good for two per quarter on average. So many footballs were kicked into the stands after touchdowns that officials asked Bears coach George Hallis to run or pass for the point after on the last two touchdowns. The game also marked the last time an NFL player, Bears end Dick Plasman, played without a helmet. December 9th, 1936, the Australian cricket team were dismissed for just 58 in the first Ashes Test versus England at the Gabba. Don Bradman was out for a second ball duck and the innings lasted just 12.3 overs with England using only two bowlers. Bill Vose, who took four for 16, and Sir Gubby Allen took five for 36. What a name. Ernie McCormick. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Ernie McCormick was unable to bat for the Aussies, so I guess we'll never know if his presence could have guided Australia to the extra 323 runs required. We're actually six for 20 in that innings, though, so fairly lucky to make 58. Although this is still miles ahead of the record low of 26 New Zealand made against the Poms in 1955, so it could have been worse. Ouch. December 10, 1922, Pete Henry of the Canton Bulldogs makes the longest known NFL dropkick field goal of 45 yards. Have you ever tried to dropkick a ball that far? No, but I reckon there'd be a few footy players that would, would uh, challenge that record. Yeah, but geez, like the oh, the accuracy would oh, be yeah, very, yeah. very difficult. It's a very impressive feat. It's a record for a reason. It is. December 13th, 1983, 9,655 fans at McNichols Arena see the highest scoring game in NBA history with the Detroit Pistons defeating the Denver Nuggets 186 to 184 in triple overtime. <sighs> what is crazy about this game, or certainly one of the crazy things about this, was that there were only two three-point field goals made from a combined four attempts. 
Kiki Vandeweghe top scored for the Nuggets with 51 points on 21 of 29 shooting to go with nine rebounds and eight assists. Alex English went for 47, 12, and seven. For the winning Pistons, Isaiah Thomas had 47 and 17 assists. Although a career 77% shooter from the line, he went just 10 of 19. So he could have broken 50. John Long also had 41 after hitting his first 13 shots. And Thomas actually tied the game at 145 at the end of regulation after Bill Lambeer intentionally missed a free throw. He actually did it well. We've spoken about some less than successful ones in <laughs> it's previous an episodes. <laughs> yeah. And then Thomas was a fraction of a second late in winning it at the end of the first overtime and missed a jumper at the end of the second overtime that would have won it. This is just one of those record games, though, that you just don't feel like will ever be broken. I dare say after that uh, one from a few weeks ago, seeing that footage between Denver and Portland, I'm not all that surprised. Yeah, yeah, true. It takes a lot of effort to score that many points. This week in sport history. So, Stewie, with the AFL draft just around the corner, we thought we'd finish our little recap of the most bizarre or one of the most bizarre seasons in AFL history. In sixth place, we had the St Kilda Saints 10-7. and seven. They were 9-13 and 13 last season in 14th place, so it was a decent rise of eight spots. In fact, I think it was the second best in the league. The longest winning streak was four games between round seven and 11. Their longest losing streak was two. Their biggest scalps were arguably Richmond by 26 in round four or Port by 29 in round eight. Their biggest loss was to Frio by six, a game they had well under control. Their win-loss against the top eight was three and four. The win-loss against the bottom 10, seven and three. Look, I've got to give the Saints a B-plus on this one. As you mentioned, up eight spots on the previous year. Just ultimately overawed on the big stage. I think that's kind of what it comes down to. I don't think Brett Ratton's probably had enough credit, though, for how well he did with the Saints this year and how well he had them playing. They had a lot of new faces. They just looked so cohesive, though, for a good chunk of the year. I mean, they still had some of their fourth quarter fade outs, including that one against Freo that you mentioned. But geez, Dan Butler was an absolute gun this year. He's going to push sure for was. all Australian again yeah, next year. Absolutely. And they found a they found an absolute beauty in Dougal Howard. And Max King looks really dangerous up. Oh, forward. those Kings brothers, yeah, those King brothers. And it's got to be said, Stewie, we watched that game against Richmond together, and they played them quite well. If they'd had Paddy Ryder, who knows? Yeah, look, the Saints matched up very well against the Tigers in both of the games that they played this year. So you just never know. I guess for me, the big disappointment for the Saints was probably Brad Hill. I expected a lot more from him. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, but they brought in Brad Crouch, who's going to help their midfield out dramatically. Sean McKernan and Jack Higgins were also really good pickups. So the Saints were probably in the top three teams in terms of their trade period efforts. And I can see them knocking on the door of a top four season. Absolutely. Yep, I agree. I think I think a B-plus is a fair grade too. Yep. In fifth place, we had your West Coast Eagles. They were 12-5 and five this season. They finished 15-7 and seven last season, also in fifth position. Their longest winning streak was eight games between rounds five and 13 with a bye in the middle. Their longest losing streak was three games between rounds two and four when it started pretty shaky for them. Their biggest scalp was Geelong by nine in round nine. And I dare say their biggest loss to, to bring it up for the second week in a row was to the Doggies by two in round 16 with a spot in the top four still well and truly up for grabs. Their win-loss against the top eight was three and four. Their win-loss against the bottom 10 was 9-1. and one. Their only loss was to Gold Coast in round two, that lean period. Yeah, ultimately, I probably would have to disagree and say that the loss to Collingwood in the first final was, was probably a little bit more because Sorry, that those are, the season. Yeah, those are regular but, season notes. But yes, of yeah, course, okay, yeah, that was a enough. huge disappointment to Collingwood. Absolutely, that was their most disappointing loss if you include finals, definitely. But yeah, no, you're, you're right. The, the Western Bulldogs one was... And still is very, very painful, obviously. that. Well, you, yeah, um, you would have had that double chance probably if you'd won that game. So, yeah, that was huge. Yeah. 
Yeah. So we would have lost two finals instead of one. Um, look, for, for me, the season gets a C. It's probably just barely a pass mark for me. On paper, we should have been pushing for a qualifying final, not a first-round loss. But, you know, for that to be the only home loss of the season is probably what makes it even more disappointing. The Queensland hub, as you mentioned, probably couldn't have gone much worse. Um but obviously, once we got back in, into Perth, we were we were okay. Just a bit too inconsistent, I guess. Though. I mean, the highs of Nick Nat and Liam Ryan's seasons, the lows of how relatively average Tim Kelly was, tons of injuries, I guess, at the back end at really bad times as well. Tim Kelly was a disappointment too, especially considering how much you gave up to get him. Yeah, I mean, I was expecting him to be averaging, you know, 25 possessions a game, bursting through packs, you know, kicking goals from outside 50. But no, we, we didn't really get as much. I, I think with a full season and another preseason in, he's bound to get better. But yeah, uh, there's still time. Wasn't great. I guess moving forward, we might see a decision sometime this millennium on Willy Rioli. <laughs> Lewis Jetta's time finally ran out. I mean, on top of that, I think the positives moving forward, I like Alex Witherden and Zach Langdon as pickups, but this side is aging rapidly. A lot of key players are the wrong side of 30, so maybe two to three seasons left on most of them. Uh, some guys even less. You know, Players like Josh Kennedy have probably only got one, maybe two in them, but uh, yeah. It's, I hate to say, Stewie, I think the window's closed. Mm, I think this year, cool. this year is the last chance with this group. Okay. As you say, very aging roster. I think they really need to make noise. They absolutely need to finish in the top four this year to give themselves any chance. And if they don't make some noise this year, I think it could be rebuild time. I don't think it's quite that dire yet. You've got guys like Oscar Allen who will be a, a decent replacement for Josh Kennedy. You've got uh, you've got Witherden coming into that defense to, to take over from Shannon Hearn ultimately. So I don't think it's quite as dire as that. But yeah, it, it's not much longer, I would suggest. I don't think it's a full rebuild bottom out kind of situation, but I think it's a kind of a hover around the middle kind of period. But time will tell. Time will tell. Yes. In fourth place, we had Geelong. They were 12 and 5 after finishing 16 and 6 last season, which was good enough for first place. They, of course, lost to Richmond in the prelim last year and then in the granny this year. Longest winning streak was between rounds 10 and 16 with a bye in the middle again. That was six games. The longest losing streak was just one game on five different occasions. The biggest scalp was Port by 60 in round two. Their biggest loss was Carlton by two in round three. It was hard to find uh, bigger scalps uh, than the grand final, of course. Win loss against the top eight was four and three. Win loss against the bottom ten was eight and two. Look, it, this is an A season. I mean, absolutely fantastic for the Cats. They'll probably still feel a little bit confused as to how they aren't premiers, but for some poor kicking in front of goal, we might have been seeing a navy and white instead of yellow and black. So, just yeah, just a really great season. A lot of really great young guns in Sam Manigola, Cam Guthrie, Brandon Parfit all emerged to to really top quality players. They've added pure class in Jeremy Cameron, Sean Higgins, and Isaac Smith in the offseason. It's hard to imagine the Cats won't be there again. Much like the Eagles, though, they've got an aging list. A lot of their guys are, the again, the wrong side of 30. Guys like Paddy Dangerfield, Selwood, Hawkins, Henderson, Tui, Duncan, and Blitzass join them this season. So, you know, they probably need to strike while the iron's hot. Yeah. Oh, no, definitely, definitely. I mean, Jeremy Cameron is a really huge coup signing of the offseason, that's got to be said, I think. So I think they'll absolutely challenge once again. But you're right, the window's not too wide open either, probably. Hmm. It's a real destination club, though. Players want to go it there. It is. It really is. 
In third place, Richmond were 12, 4, and 1. They, of course, won the grand final for the second time in a row. They did the same last season after finishing 16 and 6 and also finished in third then. The longest winning streak was six games between rounds 12 and 18 with a bye in the middle. The longest losing streak was two with a draw between rounds two and four. The biggest scalp was Geelong twice, once by 26 in round 17, and then, of course, the grand final. The biggest loss, well, doesn't matter, but probably GWS in round eight. The win-loss against the top eight was 4-2 and 1, so not spectacular, but they got the job done. And the win-loss against the bottom 10 was 8-2. and two. I'm going to give these guys an A plus minus. So okay. probably the the only real stain on this was, was losing Jack Higgins, so another really talented small forward going to St Kilda. But it's not going to stop them from being favourites again next year. I mean, they were absolutely decimated by injuries for a good chunk of the year and still managed to get them all back at the right time to work their way back to a... Uh, another grand final win. I mean, they've uncovered the next wave of Tigers too, which is something that not all the teams have done. Look at guys like Shea Bolton, Jake Arts, Mabo Chol, Jaden Short, and the egg, Derek Egmoless-Smith. Uh, great I mean, name. And I've got to add one there too, Noah Bolter, a great fullback. Noah Bolter, of course. How yeah. do I forget him as well? After, exactly. after losing one of the best fullbacks in the season to early retirement, they, they've uncovered another one. I've mentioned it before, but he's he's fantastic. Mm. So you add all of that to Dusty Martin in his prime and obviously all of the other amazing pieces that they have, what more could you want in a football club? There's every reason to believe they could do it all again. Oh, I challenge anyone to doubt them. In second place, we had Brisbane. They were 14-3, and three, and to be honest, so they should have been. They played most of their games at home. They also finished second last season after going 16-6. and six. The longest winning streak was seven games between rounds 11 and 18 with a bye in the middle. There's a theme here. Their longest losing streak was one on three different occasions because they only lost three games. Their biggest scalp was Port by 37 in round five. Their biggest loss in the regular season or the home and away season was Hawthorne by 28 in round one. But of course, it was the prelim where they got absolutely pantsed by Geelong at home. Their win loss against the top eight was five and two. The win loss against the bottom 10 was nine and one. Probably give these guys an A minus, a sensational regular season, albeit aided by, you know, 46 of their games being played in Queensland, as you alluded to. Um <laughs> Look, really good start to the finals as well. Huge win over the Tigers, something they hadn't done in a very long time. But yeah, they just lost their way against Geelong under the bright lights. And, you know, you saw for the most part of the season, a Lions team kind of grow up in front of your eyes. But yeah, just unfortunately, just not there on the biggest of big stages, really. So um, moving forward, obviously, I mean, their midfield is absolutely the elite of the elite with guys like Lockie Neal, Hugh Luggage, Jared Lyons, etc. Mm. Their defense is rock solid. Their only real issue is goal kicking, which is something that I spoke about all season. Mm. We know Joe Danaher won't fix that, but look, another year at the top and the Lions should be there or thereabouts again. I really like the pickup of Nakia Cockatoo Collins. He and Danaher, I guess, are kind of low risk, high reward guys. So, you know, maybe, well, it depends the money. Deal. Yeah, it depends the money they're throwing at Danaher. But I mean, even at 70%, he could be a very handy piece for them. So they mm. absolutely should try and finish in the top four once again. You just can't help but think that this was a golden opportunity they left begging. Oh, absolutely. This is, as as you mentioned in one of our previous episodes, they will probably never get another opportunity to host a grand final. Very unlikely. Certainly not for a very (laughs) long time anyway. Yeah. (laughs) Very unlikely, unless they move back to Fitzroy. Then finally, in first place, we had the Port Adelaide Power, also 14-3. and They finished 11-11 and last season in 10th place, so no surprises that they had the biggest ladder climb of any team. Their longest winning streak was five games between rounds 12 and 18 with, you guessed it, 
A bye. A bye in the middle. The longest losing streak was won on three different occasions. The biggest scalp was Collingwood in round 18 to secure top spot by virtue of tiebreakers. The biggest loss was to Geelong by 60 in round 12, but obviously losing to Richmond in the prelim was a big loss too. None bigger. The win loss against the top eight was five and three. The win loss against the bottom 10 was 10 and 0. So kind of what you'd expect the first seed to do. Yep. Another one of these solid A seasons. Brilliant season for Port, their fourth minor premiership, first since 2004. They handled Geelong really well in week one of the finals, and they damn near beat Richmond in the prelim. So Yeah, yeah I was it, bullish on them. I thought it was their year. Well, it, it definitely looked that way. But, geez, do you remember the last couple of seasons and how much people laughed at Ken Hinckley about his plans with Port? Who's laughing now? Maybe people at a comedy club or people watching situational comedy, I guess, but certainly Ken Hinckley as well. People looking at so, NBA jerseys? Yes, this is – well, yeah, a lot of them would be laughing, Jesus – but no, it looked like Richmond Port's young nucleus. They look really, really good. You've got guys like Connor Rosie, Xavier Dersma, Zach Butters. They've all made massive strides. You've got Darcy Byrne-Jones and Charlie Dixon going through an All-Australian year with Travis Boak. Alira Lear and Orazio Fantasia as two massive, massive inclusions oh, yeah. from yeah. the offseason. Big fan of Alira. Again, Port are probably one of six or seven teams that will be expecting to be in the grand final next year. Yeah, it's going to be tough doing our predictions when the next season comes around. We've still got a while, though. We do. Well, Stewie, that was another mammoth show. What are you amped for? Look, I mean, I know I usually come up with something ridiculous on this, but it's hard to go past the honeymoon for Yuri Toloshko and his new bride, Margo. <laughs> Oh, How about yourself, mate? Well, I'm excited about a new format we unleash next week. We did try and cram in a lot this week to get prepared for that. So that's why this one did go quite long. But there's a lot going on next week. We've got the AFL draft. We've got the Big Bash starting up. And we've got that first test just around the corner as well, although that is the following week. I'll tell you one thing we don't have, though. We don't have South Africa and England because uh, the third ODI just officially got cancelled. So, Oh, breaking news, Chewie. Very good. Yeah, bro- yep. Nothing yeah, I mean, going we'll on there. We'll upload this in a couple of days and then it won't be breaking at all. It'll be broke, but that's okay. Yeah, that's okay. Breaking at time of recording. Until next week, I'm Nath. And I'm Stu. We are the Sportplex.